From Brennan to the Bocachil, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Salduck to lovely Duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine. The climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 90, the St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber Company. The Northern Pacific Railway arrived in Tacoma in December of 1873, two months after the world economy had been rocked by a worldwide panic of the same name. For a number of years during its early days, the Northern Pacific Railroad and the Evergreen State had no direct connection to the rest of the globe due to the bad timing of the new endeavor. Because of the limited service between Tacoma and Kalama on the Columbia River, it was able to make do with a few freight and passenger rates. The corporation filed for bankruptcy in August of 1875 in order to shield itself from increasing construction debt and deferred interest payments, among other things. However, the Northern Pacific rapidly realized that it had a unique opportunity to benefit from the huge infrastructure that it had built. This organization was responsible for the Tacoma, Ording, and Southeastern Logging Railroad, which was one of its better brainchildren. Until the 1880s, practically all of the high-value revenue freight was flowing in one direction, westward toward the Pacific, and the vast majority of the cars heading east were empty, having been dispatched to address car shortages in the Midwest and eastern United States and Canada. In order to avoid losing revenue opportunities, the Northern Pacific Railroad needed to design a strategy for sending as many loaded cars eastward as feasible. The Mill on the Boot, written by historian Murray Morgan, provides readers with a front-row seat to the company's strategic planning. By 1888, when the Northern Pacific was land-rich but cash-poor, its administrators saw the prudence of establishing a sawmill in Tacoma that would be able to manufacture materials in sufficient numbers to supply markets in the Midwestern U.S. and other parts of the world. Their timing was impeccable. The Northern Pacific had plenty of standing timber while lumber companies in the Midwest were suffering from a lack of marketable stands of timber due to significant land concessions the railroad had obtained from the federal government while establishing its infrastructure in the Evergreen State. As a response to the threat provided by Northern Pacific management, a meeting of top lumber executives was convened in Tacoma and it was reported on the 17th of February 1888 that a lumber syndicate had been curated. They were led by a group of timber barons who had prospered in the forests above St. Paul, Minnesota, Colonel Chauncey Griggs, Addison Foster, Henry Hewitt, and Charles Heber Jones, all of whom were men of high moral character and fiscal responsibility. Their personal money was pooled with investor funds, and in less than 60 days, they had gathered $1.5 million in startup funds, which was equivalent to more than $30 million in today's spending power. They then arranged a contract with the Northern Pacific Railroad to purchase 80,000 acres of standing timber in eastern Pierce County on the shoulder of Mount Rainier, which they were able to do because of their well-capitalized position. At the time, it was the single largest real estate transaction in the history of the United States. The purchase price per acre was around $3. It was a straightforward transaction. The lumber industry required logs, and the NP required revenue from these timberland purchases. The St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber Company was the name chosen by the partners for their new endeavor. As part of the agreement, the Northern Pacific provided an option to purchase an additional 20,000 acres. Apart from selling large tracts of timber, the railroad also sold 120 acres of spongy tidal marsh on Tacoma's Commencement Bay, which is located near to the mouth of the Puyallup River. The railroad also threw in an additional 40 acres of tideland for free. 
In any case, the land was worthless since it was located on a small island in the Puyallup River Delta known as the Boot, a boot-shaped island that was susceptible to yearly floods and had an elevation of no more than a fathom above sea level. The first development plan for the Boot intended for the construction of a sawmill with an annual capacity of 30 million board feet at the location. The construction of a second facility would be phased in over time, and the combined output of the two facilities would be 90 million board feet of lumber per year. A journalist in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, had cornered Henry Hewitt, who was on his way to Tacoma from New York, and forced him to confess. When asked about the significance of the land purchase, Hewitt stated that the sale represented a stunning 2.5 trillion standing feet of Douglas fir for the St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber Company, which he described as a staggering amount of Douglas fir. It was the St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber Company that constructed the sawmill at the boot, using timber bought in alternating parts from the Northern Pacific Railroad. The NP agreed to build a rail line from Ording out to the newly purchased timber lots which would be owned by the company. Following the completion of construction, the railroad would be reimbursed by the lumber firm in the form of car hire fees as well as $1 per thousand foot of scalable timber transported on each train according to the conditions of the contract. Because of the terms of the contract, the St. Paul and Tacoma Railroad was incentivized to ship the largest logs it could find. According to Murray Morgan's writing in Mill on the Boot, payment for delivery would not be in cash. When it came to delivering the logs, the Northern Pacific would hang on to its freight bills until the amount of money collected equaled the amount spent on building the logging railroad. They would then use the bills as payment for the cost of obtaining the line as part of their overall network structure. The new railroad partnership was first known as the Tacoma and Southern, but by the time the train line was completed, the name had been changed to the Tacoma, Ording, and Southeastern Railroad Company. In the shipping contract, the railroad agreed that it would not charge the St. Paul and Tacoma a penny more than what lumber producers were being charged in Portland, Oregon, if the line was successful. In Morgan's words, this section of the contract amounted to a pledge by NP authorities that they would attempt to open the Trans-Mississippi West to lumber from Puget Sound. If this goal is realized, it will accelerate industrial growth in western Washington, particularly in Tacoma. The Tacoma, Ording, and Southeastern logging trains would all originate in Tacoma and be operated solely by Northern Pacific workers, with the exception of the Southeastern. Up until they reached the area surrounding Ording, trains traveled on Northern Pacific Railroad rails. As the project got underway, the line was shifted southward following the drainage of the Puyallup River. Camp 1 was located approximately one mile south of the intersection. The first logging spur into the St. Paul and Tacoma properties branched into the woods for roughly one mile south of Camp 1 and continued into the woods for another mile. In the past, this spur was called the Fisk Spur and it nearly followed the current alignment of today's Fisk Road. Continuing south from Camp 1, the main line was stretched farther south to Fox Creek, where it turned due east at the confluence of Fox Creek and the Puyallup River, heading towards the foothills of Mount Rainier. The main line of the Tacoma, Ording, and Southeastern Railroad from the junction of Fox Creek was known as Wilbur Spur in honor of the supervisor of logging for the St. Paul and Tacoma Railroad. Over the course of four miles, the train line gradually gained elevation until it reached a tiny level location between Fox and Voigt's Creek. Construction Camp was the name given to the new camp that was built here. Civil engineers, surveyors, bridge and railway construction workers, as well as other support staff would be housed here. In addition to serving as the land manager's and timekeeper's field office, Construction Camp was also the only camp equipped with a company telephone, as well as the headquarters for the company store, which was housed within the confines of a converted boxcar. Thus, the company store could be transported to various remote areas across the system on a weekly basis and then return to Tacoma, where it would be restocked. The Tacoma, Ording, and Southeastern Railroads would exchange empty cars for loaded cars here, just as they did at Camp 1. As early as April of 1889, trains loaded with up to 30 cars of logs were arriving at the mill on the boot in Tacoma. 
During their first year of existence, the Northern Pacific, its subsidiary rail firm, and the St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber Company enjoyed a cordial working relationship. Then there were the trainloads of grade-A Douglas fir lumber that sat unpurchased in wholesale lots across the Midwestern United States. The Northern Pacific had previously stated that their charges would not be greater than those charged for lumber originating in Portland. However, these rates remained too expensive to make Pacific Northwest lumber generally competitive with white pine from the Great Lakes and the Mississippi Valley. Douglas fir is an excellent building material, and Midwest lumber dealers were well aware of this. When it finally arrived, however, there was little or no margin left to make a profit on the sale of it. It was possible to buy soft southern yellow pine for pennies on the dollar and ship it up the Mississippi River. The St. Paul and Tacoma Railroad sought rate relief with the Northern Pacific. The railroad objected, claiming that it was not in a financial position to correct the situation. In Morgan's words again, the fact that the railroad fell into the hands of receivers in 1893 suggests that its claims may have been genuine. However, the rate structure placed the operations of a mill that was built with the intention of selling to customers in the Midwest in a difficult position. Despite the fact that the railroad was not in a position to reduce freight rates, even for a corporation that it had assisted in the curation of, it continued to build and enhance its infrastructure. Colonel Chauncey Griggs, the president of the St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber Company, declared with delight on the 1st of January, 1891, the single greatest lumber sale in history, eight and a quarter million board feet of heavy timber sold to the Northern Pacific Railway, which was the world's largest railroad at the time. The transaction provided further evidence of Douglas Fir's long-term resilience as a building material. Following this agreement, the St. Paul and Tacoma Railroad committed to build boxcars for a variety of carriers other than the Northern Pacific. Addison Foster sent a group of railcar construction executives to Tacoma to demonstrate the excellence of Douglas Fir. The demonstration resulted in a flurry of new invoices being generated shortly after the demonstration. Douglas Fir had shown to be a dependable replacement in the construction of heavy frame timber structures and shipbuilding. They also brought to Brooklyn three flat cars loaded with timbers 100 feet long to be utilized in ship construction, which was the biggest cargo ever transported by rail across the continent at the time, according to Murray Morgan. Even before the Panic of 1893, the American lumber sector had been in a state of decline. First signs of difficulty appeared in 1889 when lumber prices decreased by 10% just before St. Paul and Tacoma began their sawing. Sawmills and lumberyards began to close their doors in 1892, albeit only temporarily at first. The St. Paul and Tacoma performed better than the majority of its competitors since its market had now expanded from coast to coast. In addition, it had received an order for Douglas Fir to be used in the construction of a gigantic iron ore loading plant on the beaches of Lake Superior, which had been placed months before the collapse. Despite this, not a single order was ever received during the month of June 1893. That July, the situation did not improve anymore. Griggs laid off half of its workforce, both at the mill and out in the woods, as the economy continued to deteriorate. The survivors, who ranged from senior executives to errand boys, were all told that they would have to accept a 15% wage drop. During the worst of the winter, a federal contract for lumber to be used in the construction of a ship canal in Keokuk, Iowa, kept a skeleton staff busy. The panic's ramifications may be seen in the boarded-up windows of commercial buildings on Pacific Avenue in downtown Tacoma, where it occurred most often. Everything in Tacoma had come to a complete halt, according to Thomas Emerson Ripley. It seemed as if the final whistle of eternity had been blown. Pacific Avenue, which had been a hub of activity in recent weeks, had fallen asleep. Even the Northern Pacific succumbed in the end, and the company went bankrupt once more. Griggs and his partners, on the other hand, took advantage of the situation to establish their lumber company on a more stable financial foundation. 
As the railroad was on the verge of going out of business, he approached the receiver to renegotiate his shipping contract. To reach an agreement between the Northern Pacific and the bankruptcy reliever, Pierpont Morgan & Company, Griggs was required to travel to New York for a meeting. After three hours of hard bargaining, a settlement was finally reached that was deemed to be fair by both parties. Orders for wholesale lumber started to trickle in once again. The expense of shipping the goods was no longer impediment to its use by customers. It is unclear whether the negotiations included the acquisition and sale of the Tacoma, Ording, and Southeastern Railroad, which was built in the Evergreen State. On the 12th of April, 1898, an announcement was issued that the Northern Pacific Railroad had been reformed and that two local railroads had been neatly consolidated. This occurred not long after Griggs returned to Tacoma from his trip to New York. The National Park Service was overjoyed to have finally obtained the Columbia and Puget Sound. Another subsidiary, the Tacoma Ording and Southeastern, would also be purchased. But the Columbia and Puget Sound was the most lucrative acquisition because it provided the Northern Pacific with access to important ports in Seattle and valuable coal mines in Renton and Newcastle. Rather than compete with the newly purchased line, the Northern Pacific agreed to share the tracks with the newly arriving Great Northern in order to maximize revenue from the line. The Great Northern Railroad saw this as a chance to expand its transcontinental service from its terminal at Smith Cove in Seattle south to Tacoma, gaining valuable clients such as the St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber Company along the route. Following the reorganization, the Tacoma, Ording, and Southeastern Railroads were absorbed into the Northern Pacific Railroads Corporation. However, because the Northern Pacific's rod-driven engines were not designed to operate safely on steep gradients, the NP was no longer willing to swap empty cars for loaded trains at the St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber Company's reload stations in the Cascade foothills, as had been the case previously. As a result, the lumber firm was compelled to quickly establish its own railroad, the St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber Company Railroad, in order to transport logs down to the Northern Pacific mainline. In the years 1899 to 1902, the St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber Company Railroad purchased three-geared locomotives, all Shea engines, which were capable of climbing steep gradients and hauling big loads with greater confidence on switchbacks approaching 8 degrees. It was eventually decided that the St. Paul and Tacoma would purchase 16 locomotives, with 11 of them being of the dependable Shea design. Geared locomotives were tough machines. Some of the ones owned by the St. Paul and Tacoma Railroad served in the woods above Tacoma for more than 40 years. The Klondike Gold Rush, which took place in 1897, brought the economic woes of the Puget Sound region to a rapid and glorious conclusion. Suddenly, it appeared that everyone needed lumber once more. Colonel Griggs saw this as the sign that he had been looking for to bring his concept for the St. Paul and Tacoma Railroad to fruition. Griggs promptly got to work on Mill B, which was completed in December of 1900 and put into operation the following month. The timing was excellent. Only 11 months earlier, George Weyerhaeuser and his syndicate had declared that they had completed the world's largest real estate transaction with James J. Hill of the Great Northern, a transaction that was valued at over $100 billion. Griggs was well aware that the Weyerhaeuser acquisition would result in intense rivalry for St. Paul and Tacoma. Fortunately, he was in possession of the second largest sawmill in the Evergreen State, which provided him some solace. With the inauguration of Mill B, Griggs was forced to increase logging output in order to keep up with demand for his machines. He hired enough loggers to staff three full-time logging camps. As if that wasn't enough, he subcontracted with two private companies to cut even more wood. Sixty carloads of logs left the camps every day, twice a day, six days a week to fuel his log-hungry mills. Each carload held 30 logs. The St. Paul and Tacoma Railroad Company executed its land purchase option with the Northern Pacific Railroad Company at the suggestion of partner Henry Hewitt. Hewitt also often purchased nearby parcels or entered into contracts to log them, dividing the proceeds with the adjoining landowner in the process. 
With Mill B now in service, the majority of the cuttings used in the new plant came from St. Paul and Tacoma's own forest holdings. Mill A was a smaller facility that specialized in cutting contractual logs from outfits outside of the company's own properties. These logs arrived on the Northern Pacific every day from Buckley and Wilkeson and were loaded onto ships. Eatonville and Graham were among the communities served by the Tacoma Eastern, another key supply of logs to the mill. Griggs extended its activities in Tacoma once more with the addition of a big shingle factory. The shingle mill was built on excellent tidelands adjacent to the St. Paul and Tacoma mill, making it a significant resource. The fact that there was a shingle mill right next door made sorting the cedar logs at the Long Pond incredibly convenient. It would ultimately be decided to scale off the cedar logs and boom them in a different section of the mill pond. The Douglas fir was the most common species of tree harvested, though any random forest section could also produce a marketable percentage of cedar, hemlock, and spruce, depending on the location. It was once thought that the western red cedar found in the coastal forests of the Evergreen State was some of the best in the world. Spruce would prove to be an excellent material for the construction of airplanes in the future. Hemlock, on the other hand, was derided as weeds and despised by loggers, many of whom had relocated from the Great Lakes region to the Pacific Northwest. The eastern species of hemlock was a pitch-laden tree that clogged saws and had limited usefulness as a building material in the early 19th century. The western hemlock did not have the same irritating properties as the eastern did. Despite this, loggers in the Pacific Northwest ignored them for decades. The St. Paul and Tacoma Railroad experienced a watershed moment in 1909 that had far-reaching consequences for its operations. After passing through Snoqualmie Pass, the railroad that connected Chicago with Milwaukee and St. Paul and the Pacific became known as the Milwaukee Road. It had become widely known that the transcontinental Milwaukee Road was considering establishing a connection with the subsidiary, the Tacoma Eastern Railroad. Also keen to take advantage of the quickest path into Mount Rainier National Park, the group was adamant. In order to get to Tacoma as rapidly as feasible, it entered into a track agreement with the Pacific Coast Railroad from Maple Valley to Black River Junction in Seattle, which allowed it to travel faster. To get to Tacoma, it reached an agreement with the Union Pacific to jointly construct a line between Black River Junction and Tacoma that would be shared by both companies. That's when the Northern Pacific stepped in to save the day. In order to prevent more collaboration between its rival transcontinental railways, the NP grudgingly agreed to grant the Union Pacific access to its mainline from Portland to Tacoma in order to prevent additional collaboration between the two railroads. The Union Pacific was barred from getting into a similar deal with the Milwaukee Road as a result of this. A year-end report in the 1910 Timberman stated that the St. Paul and Tacoma Railroad moved its corporate offices to the Tacoma Mill site in order to accommodate a new Union Pacific right-of-way for the purpose of servicing and supplying equipment to the facility. In March of that year, the first carloads of lumber loaded onto the Union Pacific Railroad left the mill. While serving as an outlet to Midwest markets, the St. Paul and Tacoma was still indebted to the Northern Pacific. The Milwaukee Road, on the other hand, was so eager to get access to the St. Paul and Tacoma that it constructed a dedicated bridge over the Milwaukee waterway near the mill only for the purpose of exchanging cars with the railroad. Because of the increased competition, the Northern Pacific was forced to lower freight rates in order to compete for its fair share of St. Paul and Tacoma lumber. Lumber could now be transported by rail from Tacoma to cities such as Sacramento, Salt Lake City, Denver, and Omaha via the Union Pacific Railroad system. On the Milwaukee Road, ready markets were expanded in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Chicago, among other cities. By 1909, five railroads were vying for a share of the St. Paul and Tacoma rail traffic curated by the Tacoma Mill Complex, and the competition was quite fierce. 
After lengthy negotiations that lasted years, as well as the threat of additional litigation by both sides, Herbert Griggs and the railroad attorneys reached a compromise agreement, according to an article. The contract language between the St. Paul and Tacoma and the Northern Pacific brought the bickering allies back to a judge's bench. Five full-time train crews were employed by the St. Paul and Tacoma in 1912 to run 18 miles of spur line on the main route. Later that year, the Mill A complex was completely destroyed by a fire. The St. Paul and Tacoma's management reasoned that the employees who were working at full capacity in Mill B would be able to make up for the loss. It wasn't until 1919 that a brand new Mill A was put into production. In retrospect, it was quite a mistake not to reopen the facility as soon as it was destroyed. As soon as the First World War broke out, the St. Paul and Tacoma Railroad hurriedly prepared lumber for use in the war effort. A large number of carloads were shipped to Camp Lewis and other military installations to curate cantonments for soldiers. Mill C was placed into operation by the corporation in order to keep up with this increasingly growing demand. By the end of the First World War, a little more than half of the St. Paul and Tacoma Railroad's original timberland purchase remained uncut and undeveloped. Despite this, Henry Hewitt urged the St. Paul and Tacoma Railroad to acquire additional acreage. Some stands of timber that were easily accessible were off-limits due to an inefficiency inherent in the checkerboard pattern used for the initial wood purchase, which Hewitt found incredibly frustrating. He was also plagued by standing timber that was inaccessible on the outskirts of his own property. According to Hewitt's point of view, the solution consisted of purchasing as many of the alternating tracks as was possible. By 1920, he had added another 15,000 acres to his holdings, and the St. Paul and Tacoma Company controlled the majority of the forest lands in Pierce County, which covered over 90 square miles. The St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber Company Railroad reached its zenith in 1923. In March of that year, the company received the first of two compound Mallet 2662T locomotives from the Baldwin Locomotive Works in North Carolina. Its identical twin was brought in January of the following year. These locomotives could perform the work of four standard steam engines when used in tandem. The engines numbers 7 and 10 were distinguished by the presence of split saddle tanks which were situated directly above the driving wheels. As a result of the water weight in the saddle tanks, mallet locomotives had higher adhesion to the rails and were better adapted to hauling big loads up steep gradients in wet conditions than other locomotives. Both locomotives were capable of traveling at a leisurely 45 miles per hour, which was more than twice the speed of geared locomotives. In addition to owning a substantial amount of rolling stock, the St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber Railroad was a pioneer in the use of track-mounted logging cranes, which were capable of dragging logs for up to a mile before booming them into a log flat. The methodology proved to be so successful that the West Coast Lumberman magazine published an article on the novel method of logging. The machine was purchased by St. Paul as a utility machine, which means it may be used as a logging crane for re-logging, for bridge construction, pile driving, ballast digging, as a dragline machine, or as a wrecking crane. After a while, competitors such as Weyerhaeuser and Simpson began to take notice of St. Paul and Tacoma's business practices. When the Great Depression hit, it had a demoralizing effect on the economy, to say the least. To make ends meet, the St. Paul and Tacoma Railroad curtailed operations and auctioned off surplus equipment, including locomotives, to raise funds. While this was the case, logging superintendent Ernie Allison reported that he laid 13 miles of track in 1933, believing this to be an industry record for a single year. When Allison tried out logging trucks and cat skidders in the 1930s, it found that they worked well and the company remained busy even through the most difficult of times. According to the 1936 Timberman, the company's operations in the Ohop Valley were producing approximately three-quarters of a million feet of timber per day at its peak. 
The St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber Company survived the Second World War and prospered throughout the early years of the baby boom, albeit some of its railroad activities were rendered obsolete as the cost-effectiveness of trucking logs increased. When the last load of logs pulled by the St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber Company Railroad was delivered to the reload yard at Lake Kapowson on the 30th of September 1949, it was a momentous occasion. From that point on, a fleet of Mack trucks was responsible for transporting all logs hauled to the Northern Pacific Reload site down the mountain. The St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber operation was doing well into the late 1950s, but it needed to compete on a similar scale to juggernauts such as Weyerhaeuser if it wanted to keep up with them. The most expedient method of accomplishing this was to grow. The St. Paul and Tacoma Paper Company and St. Regis Paper Company merged in 1958 to form the St. Regis Paper Company. The St. Paul and Tacoma Company had already harvested billions of board feet of timber by that point thanks to the efforts of thousands of loggers. To summarize, St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber Company, once the second largest logging and lumber company in the Evergreen State, held 90 square miles of standing forest in Pierce County and manufactured billions of board feet of lumber at its mill complex in Tacoma during its peak. As part of a partnership with the Northern Pacific Railway, the firm was established in 1888 with the goal of constructing a subsidiary logging train into the forest below Mount Rainier in order to remove the timber. For the next seven decades, the lumber industry continued to harvest trees almost constantly, surviving two world wars, two bankruptcies, and the Great Depression along the way. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Doing so really helps the show to grow, and any help that you can give in that regard will be greatly appreciated. Sources for this episode include HistoryLink.org, ArchivesWest.org, Eatonville Terrainier, Murray Morgan's The Mill on the Boot, Volume 8, Number 3 of the Columbia River and Pacific Northwest Timber Beast, Green Timber by Thomas Emerson Ripley, South on the Sound by Murray Morgan, In the Shadow of the Mountain by Lawrence Anderson, The Tacoma Daily Ledger, The Tacoma News Tribune, The University of Washington Library's Special Collections, and ChroniclingAmerica.gov. Thank you for listening to Episode 90, The St. Paul and Tacoma Lumber Company. Episode 91 will be released next week. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing still a Guamish and the swirling skookum chuck and Moclips and Copalis where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. <laughs>